um, and all caps on individual words that I would hit or stress if I was sitting in front of you speaking. My hope is that when you read it, some of that will ooze out of the screen and you'll hear my voice as you're reading it. Now, unfortunately, with the texters, they use all caps as shouting. So if you send them, why did you shout at me in that message? I was not. It was an emphasis thing. Anyway. I, I, I have a I have a very hard time, and most people do, but I have a very hard time reading a text that has more than one idea and no punctuation in it. Because my mind just races with the possible interpretations of it if you read it different ways. I just heard chat again. I just heard a blip. Yeah, it's a weird thing, you know, again, because I've been dipping my toe into audiobook stuff. Um, you get a lot of blah, 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 he said. And so that is a writer's, when you're writing for the eye, that is an indication of who it, who it is. When you're doing it as an audio thing, there's a lot of discussion of like, well, this whole block is he said. And we know it's him because of the topic and the context. So should you drop the he said or leave he it said, in? But the he said be at the end of the statement? It can be anywhere. They, you know, he said, I want to go to the store. Or I want to go to the store, he said. Or I want to go, he said, to the store. All those constructions show up in books all the time. Sure, yeah. And so... Yeah, it, it's, it's super interesting. And I, I think it's part of the reason why I am uh, a horribly slow reader. Because as I'm reading things, I'm constantly like analyzing and critiquing it and thinking about how I would uh, how I would have written it differently to make it more clear. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting subtlety of doing something created for one medium and translating it to another medium, and how much do you honor the conventions of the first medium and bring them across to the second medium? It's just a, bit, a small, interesting topic. There was a phrase that I heard uh, Mr. Sorkin say in a, in an interview recently. It was, a, it was an old interview, but I listened to it recently. He called it casualizing the language, you know, in terms of like writing uh, right. dialogue. And, and, and then you get the video part added on. <clears throat> what I was going to say is that's an important thing anytime we're putting people on camera because 90% of what people write is written to be read. And now you need to kind of casualize that language. I find it very difficult when there's a lot well, of actors do that interpretation on set. Actors well, do, that's, but I don't, that's the, I don't get to work with actors. I work with business people who don't belong in front of camera, and yet today they're going to be in front of a camera. Yeah, that's, you know, he said angrily, well, the actor can do that. You don't even need the words in the script, you, as sure. long as the script indicates angrily. And so, yeah, that's why the editor has so much determination. I used, I used to read uh, prompters, and I would read, just like Ron Burgundy, I would read exactly what was up there. Um, without paying attention to what I was actually saying. I got into a lot of trouble. Or they used actor, to pick on me. Actor turns to camera and says, who wrote this stuff? 
I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. Another Sorkin line I've heard multiple times here. Once again, thank you all panelists for being here. I appreciate it. Have a great show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. First hour, we do a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your questions. That's anybody who gets into the Mukana system on the back end can pop in a question, also vote on those questions, and then that's what runs our show. The questions that have the most votes go first, and we hopefully uh, spend more time on those, and then and we just go down the list until we're out of questions. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, and today we're talking to the LumaTouch folks. Uh, the LumaTouch Multicam Studio will be one of our focuses, so Chris and Terry will be here from LumaTouch um, to talk about Multicam Studio. That's our second hour. Right now, we're going to dive into our general Q&A. Um, let's see, I think Mitch is reading today. So, Mitch, what do we got? Bill, thank you. First question in from Robert Shoji in Los Angeles, California. Robert uh, asks, uh, what entry-level key and fill lights under $300 do you recommend for a basic interview setup? I'm going to start with David here. Uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, Elgato lights, the Key Light and the Key Light Mini, or uh, Key Light Air, sorry. So the Elgato Key Light is $150. That's actually down in price at when it came out, it was 200. The key light air is 130. I'm using two key lights right now. What I love about them, and this isn't unique to them, but I can clamp them right onto my desk. I've got a sit-stand desk, so I clamp them right on. They're able to go up and down with me. Um, I can control them wirelessly, uh, either through the computer or through my iPad, or um, I have a button set up on my Stream Deck that turns them on and off. Easy to use. They uh, can be a little glitchy sometimes, but all in all, um, really good products. And Mitchell Hill. Yeah, I agree with uh, David. The Elgato is a good choice. Uh, if you're going to move through the uh, the ecosystem of uh, key and fill, uh, the Nanlite people uh, have a number of different options. Uh, they have the Pavo tube, uh, which uh, Alex has been known to use when he's uh, traveling. And uh, they also have a thing called a mixed panel, which uh, I'm using as a fill light over here and a hair light over here, although it doesn't need to work as hard for my hairline. And um, over and above that, uh, then you get into very expensive stuff like my, uh, I have a light panel, uh, Astra Soft, but that's way out of that price range. John Preto, what say you? Wow, a third option here. So so the lights that Tom Ferguson recommended for the $10,000 studio or the Godox BS45 uh, says a key and a fill. And then for the money left over to keep you at right at $300, um, the Godox CL10 as a, as a kicker on the back. For 300 bucks good deal there you go alex Lindsay. alex good morning good morning yeah I, yeah I, I um I, i'm pretty happy we have a lot of nan lights um you know and the main thing to think about is for the the your key is really a large source you know so you can have uh the the nan light 68s are pretty large um, i think they're about 24 by 18 or something like that or, or you know something in that ballpark um that big source really makes a lot of people 
look good. So think about that. It can be a diffuser. The big thing you don't want to do is buy something that's really small. Um, that's going to be very sourcey. It usually picks up everybody's imperfections. So the larger the source is, the better uh, for most average lighting. There's a lot of people that can do really fine tuning, but if you're talking about something that's cost effective, um, look at something also that potentially has a Chimera um, and uh, or something that's going to give you a, a nice big box, boxy source and that's going to make almost everybody look better than they normally look. Uh, Chris Fenwick. I was just corresponding with uh, our friend David Brady uh, yesterday, and he said he just flashed the firmware on his NAND lights, and he now has remote control of them. Which ones? I don't know. It's the ones that he uses for his ice blue background. There's just so many. Yeah, uh, I think it's like the little ones. I don't know. Oh, they're but the little ones, yeah. It's something to look into. Can you imagine? Like, how cool is that? Like, you buy a thing, and you use a thing, and then just like, magic new software, and it's a whole new thing. Fun. Very nice. Uh, let's see. I'm moving on to Courtney Gooden. Well, if you want cheap, uh, a good choice of the ones that I'm using here, these newer, it's hard to beat this price. Oops, sorry. Um, that it's $176 for two uh, lights. I'm going to try and show it to you here if I can get my switcher in the right position. Okay. Uh, it's two lights with a carrying case. These are bicolor lights. They're tunable between uh, tungsten and daylight. They have a built-in battery. They have AC and they have a carrying case, two 13 inches and they're nice and smooth, and it's similar to something that I'm using right now. Uh, for 176 bucks for two of them, including the stands, you can't beat that. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing deal. Um, Mitch Hill, you wanted to re recall? Yeah, I just wanted to jump in. I, I, I'm going to make a suggestion. I know it's very tempting to use those ring lights, but the problem with the ring lights, keep in mind, is that they reflect into your eyes unless you have a lucky to have it in the right spot. But... For the most part, you can tell people right away have ring lights because they get that strange uh, iris going on because it's reflecting the light directly back into your uh, glasses, eyeballs. Yeah, I think you've gotten a lot of really good um, advice here. And there are, it's amazing how many lights there are at the lower price points that do a really good job. I'm, I've been, I have a couple of small, uh, newer fill lights that I'm using for my facial fill. I have a larger soft box up above. And we've talked about this. The bigger the source that's apparent to the, the, your face when you're being lit, the less kind of blemishy you look. It's just how light works coming in at different angles of incidence. So um, it was brought up that the idea of some sort of mounting system, speed rings are the traditional things that you put in front of a point source light to spread it out and make it a softer thing. Uh, if you use that kind of system, you want a little more punch to the light. So all those things goes into figuring it out, but I think you've gotten some really good uh, suggestions here, Robert. So let us know uh, how it works out. Let's go to the next question. From John Preto in Las Vegas, USA. In a surprising move, Japan's government recently reaffirmed that it will not enforce copyrights on data used in AI training. Thoughts? John Preto will start us off. John? This is the exact case that's pending now with um, with Midjourney and and Stability AI, and as a as an artist, do you want your materials used in the in the training model? And Japan is saying no. Here, we I haven't done complete fact check on this story yet. There's conflicting stuff I'm seeing out on on the inner tubes, 
but this will be a this will be a landmark decision if they make this uh, decision not to to prosecute copyrights on building the training model. Yeah, this is the beginning of a lot of discussion of this. Courtney, your thoughts? Um, the big question is whose copyrights laws are they going to adhere to? Japan's or the United States or Europe's, the EU? It doesn't say, so I'm I'm curious because the United States copyright laws exceed oh, almost all those in other countries where it's almost a hundred years these days. So uh, that could incorporate uh, a lot of of you know masterworks from the 20s and 30s and so on. But um, how do, how they're going to enforce it is another thing I don't understand. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, when a specific country says we're not going to enforce those laws, I don't know whether this is true or not, but when they do that, what they're saying is this is a place to innovate. So they're basically saying you can do whatever you want in Japan. Um, and and what that's going to do is is that there will be, if if the United States closes up that, that market, this is what I think Japan's trying to kind of force the issue of going, we want to move forward. If the United States closes it up for, you know, or or the EU or both, the place to do this will be Japan, you know, and you'll, so you'll see a lot of innovation and, and moving and so on and so forth in a way. And so it's basically threatens the United States and EU falling behind in the process because a lot of companies would just move to Japan, <laughs> you know, so, so they, um, uh, or they'd move their servers or whatever, whatever they would, that they need to do to do that. It's very hard to stop people from using those training models if those models, you know, are used in one place and not the other, it's it's just hard to it's hard to know where it all comes from. So um, it'll be very complicated if 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 the countries all don't work together. And Japan has shown that it probably won't work together. Um, it, it's going to be very hard to um, suss all of this stuff out and, and enforce it. In general, I think that it was probably fair as to say it's going to use it, but it also can't be copywritten. <laughs> you know, so so if you do those two things at the same time, it's kind of even. If you're going to create content with it. Uh, if, with copywritten material, you can't copyright it yourself. Uh, if the machine makes it, I think that's pr a pretty fair, even even uh, thing. I don't think the United States. I think that they're going to have a hard time getting the court to understand how looking at images is a violation of copyright. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, I I agree. The looking at images, you know, this is a huge discussion. We can't get into it now because you know time. But uh, I want people to think about this. We call we want to call all of this innovation, artificial intelligence, and um, either the computer or the in artificial intelligence is creating something or it's copying something. Um, you, it, if I uh, were to hop on a plane, not going to happen, uh, go to the Louvre, uh, stand in front of the Mona Lisa, absorb it, am inspired by it, and then I go and I buy a canvas and I, and I paint something because I have been exposed to a piece of art and am inspired by it, am I not creating something of my own and can I not copyright that? So is this artificial intelligence being inspired by something? And if so, uh, what's the big deal? But if it's copying it, then it's different. So I don't understand why the conversation about, <laughs> Alex just raised his hand. He doesn't like it, it's something I said. <laughs> um, uh, I don't understand why this is even an issue if it's truly artificial intelligence. It's not. It's some sort of copy and paste with some feathered edges. It, it's a super, I, I think there's an interesting conversation. I don't know how to word it all, but I want, I want people to think about what is the difference between an artist 
watching, you know, a beautiful uh, Bob Ross painting being painted and then being inspired to go and try and paint something. Is it inspiration or is it copy and paste? You can't copyright. You, your copyright can't keep me from being inspired by your work. David Paskin. I, I have no idea how you, um, how you uh, um, enforce any of these laws. Um, so so this, this bothers me because it's completely impractical. Uh, I'm far more interested in what BART is beginning to do. Now, BART is a in my opinion, it's a far less superior product than, than uh, some of the others. But the fact that they're starting to, when you generate an image, it will give you links to where, you know, to where it found that inspiration, as you just said, Chris. Um, that to me, let's give credit. It's important to give credit, but this idea that we're just going to lock down the web to me is just absurd. Courtney Gooden. And I'm confused by the uh, statement. I'm not sure if it means that they will not enforce Japanese copyrights for people that use the Japanese-based artwork in their AI model, uh, or does it mean that they will not uh, enforce copyrights of other countries when used in a um, you know, generative AI that's generated in Japan? So I'm not sure what they mean by the statement that they will not enforce copyrights because it doesn't say whose copyrights they will not be enforced. Alex. Looking at the statement uh, last night, I, it, the impression I had is that they're basically saying they're not going to enforce copyright law on these things. They consider the generative AI to be its own thing and they're not going to, you know, so you're not, if, if you're doing it in Japan, you're not going to have to, you know, no matter what the other countries do, they don't consider that valid in Japan. And that's going to give Japan a huge uh, leg up if, uh, if anything happens in the other countries. Um, and so, and anybody who wants to hedge it. So as what will happen is as court cases start to run in the United States and Europe, if they look like they're not running well, people, you know, servers will start getting moved to Japan. <laughs> you know, so like that's what's going to happen. And that's what Japan's, I think, what they're angling for is to, you know, they're, they're trying to be on the front edge of this rather than on the tail edge. The problem is that you, you don't want to be on the tail edge because there is no way to stop the front edge, as David was saying. Uh, by making this open source and by opening up a lot of this, this stuff and making it available to everyone, it's impossible to put the genie back in. Like, you know, and, and, and that was done on purpose. You know, like it, it was, you know, done on purpose to like, we're going to release all of this so that there's no way to stop it. Um, you know, so that's the, that's the fundamental issue. It's not really copying, pasting in the way that we would think of it. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because it's, Every pixel is, be, I mean, the, the, the way it's the image, it's not cutting. I wish it would cut and paste sometimes. Sometimes I get, I get images out of it that I wish it would just cut and paste what I wanted in there rather than, but it's generating those, um, those images from, you know, it is in the same way that, I mean, very similar in the way that we think about those things. It's just that it's look, it has a much larger source to work from um, than, than the average human being. Um, as it puts it together, the best way to think about it is if you take a, if you take a, 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 it's really kind of a fun thing to do. You open up your phone and just type a word in, and then just only use. We talked about this before, but only use the next words that the that the iPhone thinks you want, and just start tapping on those, and you can build a whole little story uh, that that comes together. That's how it's doing that. It's just at its scale, <laughs> you know, like you know, it's it's coming up with the next thing, um, and it's putting that together. I think that uh, so. I think that it's going to be really. Um, a fascinating, you know, uh, process as we as we start to watch it. But I don't think that there's any way to. We have to stop, as David said. We have to stop thinking about how we're going to stop AI because it's not the the process is not stoppable. 
you know, like it's not, you know, and, and I think that we spend a lot of time trying to stop things in the world that are, you know, inevitable rather than figuring out, well, how, what are we going to do about that? <laughs> you know, like, you know, and so, uh, you know, and I think that that's the, you know, like it's, it's how to dance with it, not how to, how to, you know, you can maybe slow it down a little bit, but even I think all of these folks are, that are saying we should regulate it are just trying to get rid of their competition. You know, like, you know, they, you know, like they think that's the, that's the issue. Or they, catch up. Uh, yeah, I mean, or, 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 you know, but, but I think that a lot of them that are in the front say, oh, we should regulate it now because that's good for them. I just wonder if we're going to get to a point where you see a swoosh on a shoe and you have no idea where it came from because that swoosh for the next generation was generated by AI and now everybody can use it because nobody owns it. So all the shoes have the same swooshes and we can't tell one from another. I don't know. There's, this is really a complex thing that we're moving into. Again, uh, the one thing I'll say is that I, I don't think that I, I, don't think that the real danger is that is copyright. Like I, I again, I think that that's an old that's an old thought. <laughs> like you know, so co- you know what's happening here is that if you look at TikTok and you look at generative AI and everything else, the real danger is is that no one's going to care about the copywritten material anymore because they're generating so many things that fu- that bring them, you know, joy and bring them interest and solve their problems. Like I would never go back to stock photography. Like like it might take me a little bit of time to do it, but I'm I generate everything for my presentations, I used to spend a couple hundred dollars every presentation to buy stuff off of iStock or someone else to, so that I'd get just the right photos and I'd have all this stuff. And now I generate it all out of, out of, out of uh, mid journey and I would never go back, you know, like, and, that, and that's the, so iStock isn't, it's not, it's not a matter of, I'm not even selling it. I'm just using it. And that's the thing is that people can just, you know, build this stuff. If you start to watch the videos, I don't know if you've seen the long series of, of uh, Wes Anderson versions of movies. They're hilarious on YouTube. You know, and that's someone, and that's just the beginning. Wait until he can really animate those. Like, wait until they can build movies where they're just generating little trailers for Wes Anderson films that everyone's moving around and not just kind of jerked around a little bit. Um, you know, and the thing is, is that that's what's going to, it's going to be so compelling. Like, if you look at our kids, my kids anyway, you know, 80% of what they watch is YouTube, not not broadcast. And so I think that that's the, that's the, the behavior that we're going to see in the future. Courtney, real quick, and David, real there. quick, and then we'll move on. There's a, a solution to this. Uh, the legal solution would be to uh, get everybody to agree to uh, scrape all of the uh, copyright law into an LLM and have a judge, AI judge, come up with an answer. <laughs> Cyber court is in session. Uh, David, finish things up for us. Yeah, there was um, a fantastic talk given by um, Saul Khan, the founder of Khan Academy. Uh, I think it was last month at, at um, in TED. Uh, he talked about how they're integrating AI into Khan Academy. Uh, and it, it, what was just so fascinating about it is that there's so much worry about AI and how, you know, kids are going to have AI write their papers, things like this, and how Khan Academy has has looked at this and said, okay, we cannot put, as as Alex said, we cannot put this genie back in the bottle. How can we use it for good? And they've created some really exciting and innovative uses uh, of AI in their uh, program. And I, this to me, less about the specifics, but more about the approach and the attitude. This to me was really inspiring. And I think how we should be moving forward. I was going to move on, but Alex, I have a last word. 
yeah, just to build on that, just just for one second, we were talking about this yesterday in a meeting that I was in, and you know the the ability to customize education is going to revolutionize what we're doing, um, and it'll be interesting to see what Khan Academy does. But you know, one of the things that that I started doing with ChatGPT is asking it to write me a story about this or tell me about horses with a Lexile score of 800. Lexile is how we measure the complexity of par paragraphs and words, so that you can tell what where kids are reading at. What I realized is that you could just have kids read about whatever they're interested in, like have ChatGPT in the when as it matures, just tell them about things that they're interested in, whether it's horses or rockets or baseball or whatever. But you're just telling it to keep on ratcheting up the Lexile score slowly over time, and it would just slowly build up their capacity to read more and more complex things. But they're re they're not reading. You know, the problem when you get into high Lexile is that it's all boring books. And so the thing is, is they just read about whatever they want. It just uses bigger diction, you know, uh, you know, you know, bigger, bigger words to to tell those stories, and it would massively accelerate kids because they're now, they're now reading something that they're actually interested in. Uh, in the same way, you could have them write. You know, the best way to know whether someone knows something is to write those papers. But instead of having it be something right now, teachers can't do a lot of that because it takes too long to grade them. ChatGPT could just look at their papers break down all the things structurally that they could have improved, show them where all the errors are, um, and give them a whole bunch of feedback, as well as a, a general score of, of what they're doing. It, it would also know whether they whether another AI wrote it, most likely, <laughs> because it would be too perfect. Um, and so, but, but it would be able to tell all those things, which means you could have kids writing papers all the time about the, th again, about things that they love, not about whatever they get assigned. You know, you have to, in the customization of, of learning is going to be, is going to be incredible as AI starts to take off. Let's move on to the next question. Next one in from Johnny Stewart in London, UK. Can the panel recommend a simple lightweight background app to add audio latency to an external mic to sync with an external camera other than OBS? Alex, help us out. With your, if you're in OBS, um, I, I'm assuming you're on a PC. If you're in, if you're on a Mac, you should not be using OBS. <laughs> so, so anyway, so the, um, I know it's a bad idea. So, so anyway, so the, um, uh, so I think that uh, in on a Mac though, you could use Audio Hijack, and that will, you know, it has its own latency, it has its own delays that are built in. I believe that um, for some reason I, I realized I was looking about noise, noise, but I think that there's a processing either in the Nvidia card or in one of the potato vegetable things, the potatoes or the, or the pineapple, uh, audio pineapple, um, or whatever those things are. That's such a horrible name. Anyway, I, I think that, I think they have a delay in there. Mitchell. Uh, Johnny, keep in mind, there is a fix for this. Doesn't require an app. Plug your mic into the uh, camera directly and it'll be coincidental with the, uh, the video. Just make sure it's a mic with, uh, or a camera with a decent preamp and it's, it's not noise. And be wary of your sample rate. Uh, don't forget, this is your chance. Uh, we always welcome additional questions and you're voting on those questions. That's the process. And uh, the more votes a question gets, the sooner we get to it and the more time we spend on it. So you really do drive the show and there's opportunities to do that. Let's go on to the next question. Andre Dole in Berlin asking, I have a vMix laptop with Thunderbolt 4 connection. We're connecting a Sonnet box, uh, deck link enclosure, which supports... Uh, Thunderbolt 3, it only works if I use a Thunderbolt 3 cable. Why is a Thunderbolt 4 cable not working? Using the same cable with uh, OWC Thunderbolt 4 dock, it works flawlessly. Alex, that seems odd. 
support on the PC for uh, for Thunderbolt is spotty. So it is probably, there's probably extra circuitry in the OWC box, which is a little bit more, got a little bit more to it um, than the than the Sonnet. So the Sonnet's probably uh, the base format where the OWC's probably got some additional uh, circuitry to kind of make, make that work with either three or four. But if it's a straight uh, TB4, uh, to a PC, um, you, it, I don't even. Th I didn't think that Thunderbolt Four is even supported on a PC. So getting it to work on the OWC is is interesting <laughs> that you were able to get that to do that. So um, so that, congratulations that the OWC works, but it, it is uh, not normal. Uh, usually, uh, Thunderbolt Three is, I believe, the highest that's supported on the PC typically. Thank you for that. I'm really surprised because I always thought that a, a three cable would have limitations. The four would have that plus everything else. This really helps me understand it better. Let's move on to the next question. From Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California. I have not actually entered into the world of Zoom ISO. If I was to experiment, should I use the Zoom version or Andy's version? And what are my first steps towards learning to use the system? Start us off, David Paskin. So... Uh, the good news is Andy's version is the Zoom version. Uh, Andy and uh, LiminalET.com uh, created Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC. They have been acquired by Zoom, and so Andy now works at Zoom. Um, the, uh, the Zoom ISO and Zoom are two different products, uh, and yet they share the same sort of underlying structure of Zoom. So it's a separate client, Zoom ISO. Um, you'll have, it'll look a little bit different um, the, when you're joining a meeting. And certainly there are many, many more settings, uh, which include who you want to ISO, how many ISOs do you want to embed audio, things like that. Um, as far as getting started, I know that Liminal ET um, has a whole bunch of videos uh, on their website. That's a good place to start. Andy is in this, uh, this community and a whole bunch of us use it all the time. So hit us up in Discord. We'd love to help you out. Chris Fenwick. You know, Tim, I think the first question you want to ask yourself when you start jumping into Zoom ISO is, do you want to go the hardware route or do you want to um, use, uh, go a software route where you're, pull, and I'm drawing a blank. Uh, um, NDI. NDI, yeah, thank you. Uh, do you want to use, do you want to pull your ISOs via NDI and get them into your switching matrix that way? Or do you want to do what uh, I do at the very, very low end of the scale or what uh, Office Hours does at the very high end of the scale? Because um, that's what we're doing. We're using Zoom ISO and pulling everybody's uh, feed into, you know, giant switching matrix. Um, I'm using, you know, FireWire off of a little Mac Mini. I prefer, because it just works for my head, I prefer the hardware route. But either way, if you want to get started, you can use you know, a bare bones off the shelf Mac mini, get a couple of firewire or um, not firewire. How old am I? Uh, uh, HDMI outputs. And you can start learning how to, how to work it. The best thing to do, frankly, is to get into a zoom meeting. Uh, I think we even do it in uh, after hours where we'll allow people to, you know, pull some pins and, and experiment with it. That's what I did. And uh, that's how I learned it. Hardware. Alex. Yeah, I would highly recommend Zoom ISO myself. Uh, the video quality is, uh, and the video frame rate is higher, and and it's a higher quality than what comes out of the HDMI. So you're actually getting a better video from Zoom ISO um, because of how it handles the frames. Um, so it's a more direct route to get it out, and you're able to send it out over NDI 
or over um, SDI or over Siphon if you're on a Mac. Um, so if you're, you know, from a, it, it is a Mac-based solution, um, but it is far superior than I would never go back to to grab, you know, screen scraping. Um, you know, we're actually we've done it. I mean, for the, a lot of stuff we've already moved over, but Own I Know is completely getting. You know, we're about to ditch the entire PC structure that we have. Uh, for Zoom ISO to, to because it just doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, so so I think that uh, it is a it's it's far superior to that. I would highly recommend it. And a and a little preview is that if you have more questions about it, Andy and Adam Tao will be uh, joining us uh, next Thursday. Um, there's some new stuff they want to talk about that is more applicable to next week. Um, and uh, and they're gonna they're gonna do that. But usually it's open to general questions as well. Yeah, Chris, Alex, can I get a clarification on something you just said? Mm -hmm. uh, you said that uh, what is better than HDMI? The Zoom ISO outputting the Zoom ISO output, like to SDI or to NDI or to Siphon, is a higher quality video. I don't know about HDMI because I don't use Zoom ISO with HDMI because I use it with SDI, but it is definitely a higher quality video than what we see from screen just a straight screen scrape. Straight yeah. screen scrape. Okay. I mean, okay. whatever. Whatever. If we use a display, a, a monitor out of yeah. our thing without Zoom ISO. If we just do the Zoom thing where we have another monitor and it goes out, that's at a lower quality than what Zoom ISO puts out out of our SDI feed. We've compared them side by side and it's definitely, uh, color looks better, frame rate looks better. It looks, it's a cleaner signal. So I, I think the clarification I was looking for is you said better than HDMI. I am using Zoom ISO, but I'm using it with HDMI, which I no, that's so fine. You know, I'm saying okay. what Zoom when Zoom ISO is, is asking to. I don't. I don't have any experience with Zoom with uh, the HDMI. I do is using a Zoom page, but if you're using Zoom ISO, okay. it should it should work fine uh, with HDMI. My experience is all SDI and Zoom ISO because we it's just easier for me. Next question, please. John Folds from Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania, weighs in with this question. When screen sharing a Mac Mini to Apple TV, what's the best way to get audio to the Apple TV? Courtney, help us out. I'm probably the least qualified here on the panel to answer this, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, AirPlay, I believe, takes audio and video to the Apple TV. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Alex. It should go along with your video image to the Apple TV, and it should show up as an audio output uh, on your screen or whatever HDMI connection you're making to your Apple TV. And Alex, yeah. The only question is really how you output it, um, and what your the 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 real question is how do you route different things to it, which is I think your problem. Because if you're just sending out video from YouTube or from QuickTime or whatever, it's just going to take the audio with it and send it to the Apple TV. If you're trying to send out some, something specific, you're probably going to need some of the rogue Amoeba <laughs> tools, whether it's uh, uh, Airfoil or um, you know, there's a bunch of different you know. Airfoil or Loopback or a variety of those things to route the things that you want if you're trying to send out specific things that aren't just embedded audio with the video. There you go. David Paskin, you want to add anything? Yeah, I was just from within Apple TV, you can actually access your computer. There's a computer uh, icon that comes up, and you can, so if you have um, apps. Uh, excuse me, not apps. If you have files uh, in in iCloud and things like that, you can sync those together and access those and find them right in uh, right on your Apple TV. John, hope that took care of everything. Let's move to the next question. Robert Shoji from Los Angeles, California. What's a 2.4 gigahertz wireless mic system that you can recommend 
uh, for use. Rode, DJI, or whatever. Does DJI or Rode make an external lab that works well with their 2.4 gigahertz wireless system? Mitch, start us out. Yeah, the 2.4 world um, is certainly in the lower price range. And you compare it to the uh, UHF devices out there, astronomically more expensive. Um, in an interviews type situation or close to it, it's probably going to work fine. And I would recommend a uh, Rode Go 2. And if you need an external lab to plug into it, although the Rode Go 2 does have a uh, internal microphone, um, just their device they call the Lavalier 2 uh, can plug into that 3.5 millimeter connector on it. And uh, the uh, price range, uh, they make a package that has two transmitters and one receiver. It'll work with uh, your uh, your camera and uh, work really well with you. And as Alex has mentioned before, make sure you don't put that 2.4 uh, transmitter on your back. Otherwise, it's got to try to broadcast through that ugly bag of water we call our bodies. There you go. David Paskin. I'm also a Road Go guy, Road Go guy. Um, so this is one of the transmitters from the Road Go 2. Uh, it does have a microphone up here at the top. Um, I've got the uh, receiver over here, and there's another transmitter. One little hint, by the way, uh, do not leave these little guys plugged in all the time because your battery will, um, see if, there we go, your battery will start to bulge, and then you'll end up with that. Um, the the really nice thing, so the Rode Go 2 comes in at 300 bucks. They just announced the Rode Wireless Me. And what's interesting about the Rode Wireless Me is that there's a, just a single receiver and transmitter, but this receiver also has a mic on it. So you're kind of getting three for the price of two a little bit, minus some functionality and plus some additional functionality. That comes in at 150 Um I use the Rode interview go sometimes, which is this little guy here, and your your mic just kind of sticks right in here. Um, uh, and then you can put a windscreen on top so you've got a handheld. But here's the the kind of the best part about using the Rode stuff. If you have a Rodecaster Pro, Rodecaster Pro 2, or the new Rodecaster Pro 2 mini happy go lucky thing, whatever it's called, um, there's a wireless receiver built in. So now when I want to use this transfer, I, I actually never fire up my receiver anymore. I just have this linked to my Rodecaster Pro and it just works. So really that, that's, and I have it on a dedicated channel. I can mute it and unmute it. So if I'm doing something where I'm actually sitting with someone on that side of my office, I will mute this mic, just bring this over, pop it in, turn that on and we're good to go. I'm hoping somebody's not out there typing in a search for road happy-go-lucky thing right now. Courtney Gooden. Uh, I tend to, I'm up and, and like the uh, DJI because this is the case that it comes in, which I don't think the road, ca road comes with the case. You can order one that has a charging case too. Uh, it charges automatically the units and it automatically syncs the units when you open the the thing they the uh, DJI transmitters are a bit smaller than the uh, Rode goes, as uh, well. Let me grab the receiver too. The receiver as well, and it has the magnetic uh, storage. The receiver, uh, the transmitter does have a micro lavalier input on it. Uh, the receiver is great, and uh, that it has uh, headphones in line out as well, and is a teeny tiny it charges from within that battery case uh, that i showed you when i took it out of 
the transmitters, uh, as Mitch pointed out, if you put them, if you're going to plug an external uh, uh, lavalier into this, and I have tried it with the external lavalier, and it does sound good. The microphone's actually, built-in microphone sounds pretty good too. Uh, if you are going to put a separate lavalier in it, make sure that the transmitter is on the same side of the body as your receiver is. You could either put the receiver behind the person if you're going to put it on their back uh, or just hide it in a front pocket somewhere so that you're not blocking the signal because all 2.4 wireless microphones uh, are line of sight. And uh, if it's behind a big body, it's going to have trouble getting through. Alex. Yeah, I have the Rode Go and a couple other ones. I think that I would probably, if I was buying them today, that I, I got to use the the DJI uh, version of this, and I felt like the fit and finish was m much more advanced than the Rode Go. Um, so I think that it's just the next generation. Hopefully, Rode will uh, hop over them for the next one, and then we'll keep the keep the process going. Let's go to David Paskin. I forgot to mention one thing. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Great. So this is the Rode Go 2 that I'm using, but you had also asked about the Lav. I'm not a big Lav fan, but I got, where is it? It's over here. I got one of these cheap uh, headset mics that kind of looks like a countryman, but I didn't pay for the, for the countryman. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, you can tell me what the audio quality is. I'm sure it's not as good as my other mic, but uh, this is really sleek. It's just a, a little um, 35 millimeter in to the Rode Go 2. Intelligibility is really good. I mean, I'm sure it doesn't have the entire frequency spectrum of a countryman, but it doesn't sound bad for this kind of use at all. Uh, Courtney, you had a last thought? I forget to mention also in that little case are these two little adapters. Uh, this is for lightning, and there's another one for uh, uh, USB-C3 USB or USB-C, and it uh, replaces the clip on the bottom of the receiver, and it lets you, uh, so then when you have it mounted, it it sticks out like that and it'll plug right into the bottom of your phone uh, or anything with USB-C and become a uh, directly connected to the USB-C or the uh, uh, USB input of any device that you plug it into. And these are included in the package of the DJI. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Blalik Lopez, Waterman, Los Angeles, California, asking... I have for many years thought that about generative and derivative art. If you walk down the street or through a museum, it's very hard to find the difference. Does generative art even exist? Moving back to philosophy, Chris Fenwick, what do you think? This is absolutely the problem with the AI thing. So, uh, you know, in a world filled with beige PCs, a teardropped computer that's Bondi blue sticks out. Because if somebody typed into chat GPT or whatever, show me a, a personal computer, and they did it in 1999 or whatever year that was, no iteration of artificial intelligence would have come up with a teardrop-shaped computer that was Bondi Blue. Because that's, that's not derivative. It's generative. So if you, if you care about art, you probably want to see the thing that gets invented. I'm sorry, is the Bondi Blue too obscure a reference? Maybe not in this room. I don't know. It was those uh, teardrop-shaped iMacs that first came out that were exactly, colorful. Exactly, because yeah. no computer ever looked like that. Nobody ever thought to make a bl blue translucent computer where I can see the back of the CRT in there. Like, why would you do that? 
because it's daring and it and it steps out. So I think the art, Tlaloc, that 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 impresses us the most because we're humans is the stuff that that stands out. And if everything is generative, everything will just be a beige computer box. And so we we I think we're going to be impacted more so by the thing that's different, right? If every uh, a Dick Wolf TV show sounds exactly the same, and then Aaron Sorkin writes something that's been casualized, to borrow a term that we talked about before the show, it stands out. And I think that's why uh, uh, generative, I'm trying to use your words, something that is created fresh is much more impactful than something that's just derivative of everything else that's ever been there. Alex. I I think to Tlaloc's point, uh, I will say that almost everything is derivative of some version because every person that comes up with that design looked at a bunch of things that they were interested in and they derived a new thought based on the old thoughts. You know, like we're not, we're always basing everything on whatever was in the past. Now that may radically change when photography happened. Suddenly, you know, there was a huge business of doing people's portraits that went out the door really, really fast. You know, I mean, not fast, but over a couple decades, it went from being something that a lot of artists did as just kind of a thing to do. Now, what that sprung was the impressionists and the and the you know all kinds of other you know all the art that we saw after that had to change it had to do it now even then when you look at something that is completely unique it was still based on that that artist's experience and something that was you know if they, they didn't it didn't come from a void it came from their you know everything else they had seen um and you know and and, and i will say that with generative art uh, however we want to call it, it it's derivative but it's kind of like talking to someone who's, you know, on on LSD half the time and there, you know, which is, you know, you're you're sitting there asking for something. Like I asked, I was working on I needed a I was trying to get a caveman's club, you know, talking about how crude something is for a for a presentation. And so I asked for a club and I got, you know, a club over a, a, ba- a white background. No, and I was like, no, a caveman's club. So then it gave me a caveman at at, at the club. Um anyway, and so and, and these are all like <laughs> I had to to figure out how to be more specific. (laughs) There was something so hilarious about getting a bunch of photos of cavemen at a club, you know, and clubbing, you know, anyway. So, so anyway, the thing is, is that that's, this is, this is not something, it didn't go copy and paste cavemen at a club like this, these pictures, it came up with, you know, on its own. (laughs) So, so anyway, I think that what I find really great about mid, because I use mid journey all the time and I use chat GPT all the time is not so much that I, I mean, I do use the the photos. I mean, you know, for, for, to make my, they make my presentation so much more fun. Like my, it's, it's not that I'm trying to, I don't use it to try to make technical things, but I, I use it to make my presentation look prettier and more fun. But I, I will say that I make a lot of stuff that I've never seen before. And sometimes, a lot of times by accident. And um, I'm always amazed at what comes out of it. And I, and, but I think that, I think it's very creative. Um, a lot of times when I'm designing things, I, I ask mid-journey, and I'll print, I'll, I'll generate hundreds of photos of something I'm designing. I won't use any of them, but they give me ideas. You know, like to, to, to what, you know, of, of oh, I, you know, I, and, and I start thinking about things that I could use there. Courtney, real quick. 
Uh, yeah, and I used to have a uh, poster in the bathroom of my office uh, called Proverb Idioms. And unfortunately, I looked for it. And this is the only copy I could find. Unfortunately, it was low, low resolution. And it's a pictorial description of Proverbs, like throw the baby out with the bathwater, et cetera. And they're all depicted in this image. And you have to sit there and figure out what all these people are doing and what proverb they. So that's kind of a recombinant uh, a recombination of artwork is done in an, uh, in a certain art style that, that you'd recollect, you'd uh, recognize. Interesting. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that we still have time for some question adding. Uh, so this is the time for that. And please be sure to vote on the questions. Uh, your votes determine what we're going to get to uh, before we finish up the, at the top of the hour and bring in the LumaTouch folks. So next question. Next one from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, here come the video AIs. Thoughts on a roll, not live, but. And he references a newsshooter.com article. John Preto, start us off. I downloaded the app prior to the show and was playing with it. It looks like they started this thing off to be a, a remote production tool. And then in the middle of that, AI took off like a rocket ship and they added AI into their description of their product so that more people would download it. So when I think AI and video, I think generative video art like runway.ml or uh, what's the other one we'd play with, Chris? DID, DID, D-ID is another one that's generative video. This one allows you to connect your phone to your desktop and, and record a, a remote session and then have it go up. And then they're doing, you know, automatic focus and automatic tracking those kinds of things that's i'm still playing with it but that's what i found so far courtney your thoughts yeah i was confused i looked at the video and i wasn't really sure what uh they were doing and whether it uses zoom or not or whether it uses its own uh connectivity uh to connect up the different remotely uh remote people but yeah, basically it's like a digital zoom it gives you a wide shot and a close-up and it cuts between the two ai probably not it's probably just algorithmic David Paskin. Yeah, if you're a creator and you're living on your iPhone, it, it may be something cool to look at. Um, it, it seems to me that, you know, some of the, the pan, the pan tilt zoom kind of stuff that they can do is kind of, is, is kind of nice that it'll do it automatically. So it'll, you know, pay attention to when someone's speaking, it'll zoom in on them. Uh, it's got bokeh and HDR. Um, I, I mean, I think it looks interesting. Um, you can also set uh, different areas. It also has that sort of descript um, text-based editing feature that that lots of people are using now. So it's it has that rolled in here. Uh, looks like an interesting tool. If if you're using anything higher than an iPhone, though, uh, it's not for you. Let's go to the next question from Douglas Carmichael asking: What small home office Wi-Fi router would the panel recommend that would support a command line configuration interface? I've heard good things about the Synology RT. 6600AX. 60, Alex? I believe the Ubiquity line will do that, or some of the Ubiquity um, routers will allow you to have command line access to, to do those controls. Um, I'm not, not as familiar with the Synology solution. All right, let's go to the next question. Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York, asking, Morning, everyone. For production, does the panel prefer to use the X-Touch or for iPad? To control the X32 or the X-Touch MIDI controllers to control the X32. Alex, help us out. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's really nice to have a, 
um, we haven't used the iPad one that much. We've mostly used the X-Touch hardware. So the, the you know, there's a couple different sizes of that, of those X-Touch, X-Touch hardware solutions. And um, while more expensive, you know, really being able to grab onto something, we just did another setup with an X32 and going into some software or screens is really like, you just want a slider to go up and down. <laughs> so I think that um, having uh, physical uh, sliders to, to have some of that control is, is useful. Let's move to the next question. Vincent Alvarez from Bellingham, Washington asks, other than testing, why and when would you use the headset port at the bottom of a Shure MV7 microphone? I was planning to use the headset port on the PC tower. We will be using it for meetings over Zoom using the USB path, not the XLR. Chris Fenwick. Latency. It's it's all about latency. Um, by plugging your headphone into that, uh, the Caveman Club. Uh, sorry, Alex. Uh, by by plugging your headphone into the jack on the bottom, because that was so out of the blue, Alex accidentally put up his Caveman Club picture again. Um, by plugging your headphone into the bottom of the mic, you're hearing that microphone with uh, essentially, I'm going to call it zero latency. Uh, when you, if you plug in someplace else, there may be latency to the point where you're hearing yourself at an ever so slight delay, which basically drops your IQ by about 25% and um, makes it impossible to to, to present. Um, that's that's why you want to use that, Jack. Mitch, thoughts? Um, yeah, it it definitely is latency. Chris has hit that uh, nailed that on the top, but. You know, a lot of different circumstances will require no latency. If you're singing, using a mic to sing with, and you're matching up to something else, um, you need that. A lot of those uh, special preamp devices also have the ability to monitor on a headphone jack or from the computer. Um, using the uh, the headset jack on the on a tower, generally I stay away from that. All right. Uh, oh, Courtney has a thought. Courtney? Yeah, well, Chris nailed it as latency. The thing you got to watch out for is whether or not the USB return comes back to that head, headphone jack on the uh, MV7. If that's the only way you're going to be monitoring and you're in a Zoom meeting, you're going to need to hear the audio output from the other people in your headphones. So uh, whether it mixes that or not with your low latency analog connection, uh, and I'm sure Chris will let us know whether it does. Uh, it could cause problems if you don't have mix minus coming back to you, then you'll hear it doubled because you'll hear the latency version and the non-latent version. It's Chris, it, yeah, yeah, it's super interesting and it's and it can be very confusing if you're not used to it. A lot of audio devices, when you attach them, uh, MV7 is one of them. Uh, and um a lot of audio device. I was looking for an example, and I'm realizing it's somewhere else. Uh, sh- will show up as both a microphone and a speaker in the Zoom control panel, and that's because it is both a microphone and a sound destination. So the Shure MV7 is going to show up as a speaker. So if you're tr- going to use it for Zoom, on the Zoom audio settings, set the Shure microphone as the speaker, which makes no sense, right? Uh, it makes sense to set it as the speaker, uh, excuse me, the microphone, but it feels weird. Saying, and that way, the sound from the Zoom meeting will go back to that jack. Now, um, I apologize, I'm not 100% certain, but there's probably some sort of a balance knob that'll allow you to balance how much of yourself versus how much of the uh, computer that you're hearing. Um, 
I could be wrong about that, and I apologize if I am. Maybe it's in software. All right, let's move on to the next question. Abraham Barrera in Georgia. So, last week, you convinced me to buy a Mac Mini Pro for traveling. Any suggestions for traveling cases for the Mac Mini? Congratulations on the new hardware, uh, Abraham. Uh, we do that to people. David Paskin's going to start us out. Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a nice case on Amazon. Uh, kind of looks like a small briefcase, maybe, uh, made out of EVA. Inside, it's got room for your mini. It's got room for your uh, mouse, charger, little, if you've got one of those little keyboards and stuff like that. Uh, it looks pretty nice. If you just want something just for the Mac Mini itself, there are also those up there. And most of these are uh, next day delivery, which is nice. Chris Fenwick. Any excuse to buy a Pelican 1510 or the Air version of it, I I use it. Um, you're going to take some accessories, and you can also put a couple of socks in it. So take a 1510. You can roll it to the airport. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, and, and uh, I actually have a, a slightly larger version of what uh, David was showing. This is the RL, so RL Soco. Um, this is for the studio. And... Um, <laughs> This is what I use when I move my studio around, and it's exactly what David was talking about here. So I can have the studio here. Usually, I have I, I usually put my web camera here, so I have the um, uh, I'll have an Insta, Insta 360 link in here. Um, then there, there's still more room up here for power cables and so on and so forth. So love it. Like it was, I was I realized I was kind of putting my Mac mini. I was putting my Mac Studio into my backpack, and it was getting a little dinged up. Uh, with other things. And so I bought this for, I don't know, 30 or $40. And it, it's been a great, great investment. Let's move to the next question. Steve Kinsey in Lancaster, California. Uh, rumors abound that LVS has sold or is in the process of divesting from Avid. Thoughts? Who would you like to see acquire Avid in Pro Tools or is it time to let it die? <laughs> Let's go to Mitchell Hill. Well, these big companies, uh, they buy and sell uh, products all the time. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into it. Avid has a very, very uh, robust uh, user base, especially in the film industry, not going anywhere. And even more so, Pro Tools is the standard. So um, if I were to buy them, I would split them up. But that's just me. Uh, so I think you're going to find that uh, Avid's going to be around for a very, very long time, in spite of all the other things that are going on. Because you don't hear from it doesn't mean they're not innovating and doing other things they're all about speed and convenience for their particular uh, uh, vertical market. Alex? Yeah, I mean, it's a good business for somebody. It's just that they, they don't see any real growth in that business. Um, so that's the, that's the issue that they have is that there was a massive growth over the last uh, five to 10 years because of streaming. And now streaming is going to be, you know, we're, we're, we're through the other side of the golden age of streaming. And so, so things are going to get a little bit more constrained from a, from a production perspective. Um, and so... Uh, I think that they they are looking at there's just not that much growth left there. They're not really acquiring new. No one that I know that's new is getting into Avid. Some people are still. I mean, obviously schools are still teaching Pro Tools, and Pro Tools is still a, a just a, I think even more of a standard than than Avid is um, when it comes to a lot of different platforms. And so I think that Pro Tools is probably a more stable investment than than Avid is itself, because I don't, I don't see how Avid's market grows significantly, especially in competition with Premiere, Resolve, and, and Final Cut. So um, it, it definitely is embedded, though. I mean, the, the people who use it aren't going to use anything else. Courtney. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, uh, it hasn't turned a profit uh, recently. The, the profits have been going down. And these big hedge fund companies that own all of these products now, LVS is kind of an investment group that owns it. Um, 
a lot of the major names have been bought out by investment groups over the years. They used to be, you know, owned by single entities or uh, uh, individuals, but they um, are now moving into, you know, whether it's making money or not, do we keep this as part of our portfolio or do we unload it to somebody else? And that's what's going on here. Uh, Avid for years had made a living off of selling hardware, turnkey solutions with hardware and software together. And now they're moving more to web uh, cloud-based solutions for doing IO and storage in the cloud and managing your uh, assets uh, for you. So that's why they're, they're, firmly entrenched in that area. So I think they will go on. Pro Tools, is I, I agree with Mitch, should probably be split off to a separate uh, corporate entity and carried on with somebody else who cares about it, who wants to support. Let's move on to the next question. Adrian Watkins from Wellington, New Zealand, has a question. Upgrading the Zoom Studio mic with shipping the Stella X2 is the same cost as a Rode NT1 G5. Which would the panel go for? Alex, help us out. I'm pretty happy with the Stellar X2. <laughs> so I think that I, I, I uh, both Courtney and I both use it. And, and I think that it, it, it's a, for the price, I think it's a pretty, pretty darn good mic. I'd probably pick it over the road. I, I think we actually, I think I tested the road in the not too distant past and it was good. There's nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't, I don't think it, it at least for my voice, didn't sound as good as the Stellar. And uh, Courtney, did you have a thought? I concur. Okay, that's pretty simple and distinct. Let's move to the next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, asking, how far does one need to go in Dante training to be good enough to implement it? Mitch, start us off. I didn't uh, I didn't read any of it or do any of the training because I called uh, on Mickey, and Mickey squared it away for me. <laughs> there you go. So phone a friend is one solution. Alex, if someone doesn't have a friend. <laughs> well, we... we, we Mickey's in the after hours. You just have to decide when you're going to talk to him about it. Uh, no, you should take, you should, you should definitely take at least level one. If, but the, the, all three levels are available over the web for free um, in the webinar. And you should definitely, I would recommend one and two, definitely, if not th all three of them. And again, they're coming up in August and a bunch of us are threatening to take some time off to, to take them all together. Uh, I have, I took them a long time ago. <laughs> I don't remember any of it. So, so, um, so anyway, so I think that we're, we're looking at taking them together. So it should be, um, so stay tuned for that, but take a look at their, their schedule. But August one, I think is when the level one training starts up over uh, a webinar. I think that would shake them to their core if we office our posse. Into, like 50, 50 <laughs> we people who all know people each other suddenly show up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado, asking Alex, mentioned grading teachers' papers with AI. What would you think of peer review research papers judged in a way that highlights implicit bias, industrial bias, old concepts, invalid concepts? Alex? I don't think that AI is necessarily good at that yet. Um, and I'm not saying that it won't be at some point, but it definitely could. And I was talking about grading the students' papers, not grading the teachers' papers. <laughs> so, so the, uh, but, um, but I don't think that, uh, um, I, I, I think that, um, that you would probably have a hard time doing that well. We wouldn't know if it was actually accurate um, as it tries to grade those things. But I do think that it can, for instance, give you a whole bunch of extra information. Here's a whole bunch of other things that you could look at. Here's a whole bunch of other pieces. One of the things that I thought was really powerful is I've worked with a couple of partners that are not using generative AI in the way that they're, it's looking at the whole internet. They gave it a specific set of sources, so 50 books or 80 books within within something, 
and let you ask questions and it gives you back real world uh, answers, but it also gives you all the reference that it used to do to build that real world answer. That for me has been far more powerful than having it randomly come up with stuff that might might be accurate or not, um, because I'm able to get an answer, but then I'm able to check through that answer. Um, and I think that there's a future there that's probably more interesting than some of the stuff we're looking at right now. Very nice. That takes us essentially. Oh no, we have one more question. I thought we had. I thought we were at the end of that. Let's move to Paul Wallace's question really quickly. And last one for the first hour. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas, asking. Comment on Master Hub. It builds on Stream Deck's grid of programmable hotkeys with integrated LCDs on each key. The Master Hub claims to do this several times better. Does it have an app ecosystem? David, can you give us 45 seconds on this? I'll give you 30 seconds. Uh, I just had it up, but uh, the question disappeared, so I took it down, so I can't show you pictures. It, it actually looks quite interesting. They're essentially building three different models, a streamer model, I think a podcast model, an editor model. Uh, it, they're modular, so they're different components, and you can mix and match and put them all together. Um, it's going to be a combination of push buttons and LCD screens and knobs and twisties, turnies, things like that. Um, I think it could be really interesting. Uh, it's really going to come down to, um, you know, how good are those button presses? Stream Deck is pretty, I don't have a lot of problems with my Stream Deck. How good are those button presses? What are the different integrations and the UX uh, uh, as far as building that out? And the last thing I'll say is, because um, we are talking about road earlier, the one thing, there are probably many things, but the one thing that I don't understand why road did is all of their pads on the new Streamer X and the Roadcaster Pro, none of them have LCD screens built in. They're just colors. And, and so I have no idea what I'm pressing when I press one of those buttons. And if they had just put LCD screens in there, that would have made me a happy camper. Very nice. It is the top of the hour, which means it's time for our second hour. And we are so excited to have with our back with us our dear friends, Chris Damaris and Terry Morgan of Lumatouch. How are you guys? It's been a while since we've seen you. It's great. I will. Thank you. you. <laughs> and we are excited you are here in part to talk about multicam, but what else is going on? Let's just start. How, how have things been, been flowing along at Lumatouch? Go for it. Chris. Okay. Yeah. I mean, things are going well. You know, we uh, we have released multicam. That was a long stretch to get that done, but we're really excited by it. And we've done something I think very unique that um, is a little different and, and something new, like we always do with with our app. Something that you know puts changes changes the narrative on how to do things and, and makes it really editor and storyteller focused. Um, and we have lots of new things we're working on now that we've gotten that big. You know, multicam really is an app within an app. It's it's such a complete different workflow that you know we had to go back and spend a lot of time to make it work, but now we're working on more compartmentalized features. I'm sort of happy to be back to that. Things that, you know, people have been asking for for a long time that I think they'll be very excited about. And uh, so we're, we're looking forward to this year with a lot of new features coming up. Can you talk to us a little bit about your design goals and going into this? What were you looking to accomplish with the product? Yeah, I can talk about that. Uh, I wanted to, so I'm, you know, I've been doing multicam since you know, since I started editing in the 80s. And I have always felt that it was my least favorite thing to do when I was editing. It just is always a little bit like, oh, now I've got to re... I don't know, it seems like you have to relearn it every time. Every system is a little bit... has has a little bit of tricks in it. And I just felt like it could really be done in a way now with touch and... And just in a way that would make me feel really happy when I was doing multicam. So, like, I think what we 
we're able to accomplish is making it friendly in a way that you just put your clips in and you're tapping away to cut. And you don't have to really worry about uh, all the little tricks like, oh, first you have to do these and sync these or put them in a, you know, it's a super easy, super fun. And so I think what it'll do is hopefully um, make it so more people feel comfortable doing multicam. So just throwing a few cameras together, doing something quick, and cutting it real quick. So I think it's it's going to be really great. And I, like many people, have been kind of gobsmacked by how good my iPhone cameras are. Uh, I'm just constantly amazed because I've been shooting for 40 years on and off, uh, starting back in the days of shoulder-mounted cameras. And to see how far this technology in your pocket has come and able to, in, in, in the ability to grab really beautiful-looking videos and then now we need to do something with them to edit them and to work into these circumstances. Talk to me about the tools that we have to keep that quality going and, and why this is compelling for people who want to create multicam content easily. Yeah, we've, you know, I mean, we've obviously seen huge changes even in the last few years with the cameras, with ProRes capture, with, you know, better lenses. And I think we'll continue to see that moving forward. You know, we've had a, one of our, our content creator in-house, Caroline Scott, went down to South Africa to do a you know, uh, training that she was doing and she set up, you know, four camera, you know, four iPhone cameras, a couple of GoPros and did a multicam shoot right on the spot, you know, and edited it right there. Um, just amazing what you can do and the quality you can't tell apart from any other production that's been done. And that's, I think it has democratized editing in a way that was never before possible, you know, that you, you cannot tell it was done with an iPhone versus, you know, a big camera in many cases, you know, and, and that's, that's huge. Um, and so the technical limitations we're getting rid of very quickly, you know, with LumaFusion, we have, we've spent a lot of time on that where you can take a drive out of a Blackmagic, you know, a USB drive out of a Blackmagic camera, hook it up to your iPad and edit directly off of that. We even at NAB, we were doing a demonstration off of a uh, OWC hub where we had three drives running all at once and editing off all three drives without ever having to bring media into the iPad. And um, it's a real game changer. And so those technical abilities that we've put in underneath the hood help drive, you know, the easy and, and fun workflow that, you know, that Terry designed and and it just creates sort of a, I think, a magical experience. And I would imagine that the hardware available, the fact that there's M-series chips in the new iPads and things like that, is that driving what you're doing? And how, how much pressure does that put on your development effort to always write for these fabulous new tools? Well, you know, it's, it's one of the things I've always joked about is that, you know, we don't have to do a a lot of work when we get those, we just have to stay out of Apple's way because they do a lot of the optimization, you know. And and so at each step of the way, when we get a new, you know, when we got the M2 processor, so like, all right, let's see how many tracks we can push it with. And, you know, we did, again, at NAB, we were showing 16 tracks of 4K video playing back and it was playing back smoothly, you know. And, and uh, so, you know, we just have to be careful about our development, but we let Apple do their amazing optimization and just take advantage of that at each step of the way. And, and that's worked for us very well. But it is interesting, though, that the, you know, Final Cut is and and DaVinci Resolve for iPad are both only on the higher end devices, where whereas LumaFusion is running on all sorts of phones and iPad Air. And Yeah, we, we find that the performance even, I mean... I have to always make myself go back and work. You know, I I just sit here with an iPad uh, ten, ninth generation to, to test with to make sure that it will run well on there. 
And it's still amazing to me that even six tracks of 4K video on it will run smoothly on, you know, on that iPad. So we've always had that ability there. And yeah, it's it's one of the fun things is that we've, you know, got it available on all these devices and it runs well on all these devices, you know, and it degrades gracefully even on the old devices. So I that's always fun for us. Okay, well, talking about it is fun, but I understand there may be a demo in our future to see how it runs. Is that possible? Yeah, I do have I do have it here, and I'll I'll just do a casual demo. So if you have questions, you can just stop and ask. Um, Way cool, thank as you. As I go, so I'll share my screen, share sound, and share. There we are. Okay, should be coming any second. Here we are. Okay, so here I have an empty timeline, and I'm just going to add a multicam container to the timeline from the menu. Can you all see that? Yes. Yes. Okay. So when you have a multicam container, you there's this button here that just says synchronize, and now I get my synchronizer. I'm going to just, I could add six clips and I'll just add six ones that from this shoot. This happens to be a 12 camera iPhone shoot that we did. And so I've put the cameras into the six drop zones. They're not synchronized yet. And I'm going to go get my primary audio. Primary audio for us is, you know, the desk audio that you had when you shot your um, multicam that the musicians in this case were synchronizing to. And down here, you see press to sync. We can sync automatically and that will choose the best by audio or time code or choose only audio or only time code, or you can sync manually if you have a clip that doesn't have audio on it or doesn't have time code. So I'll just do automatic. And now you can see my clips are synchronized. I'm gonna just, I can tap on each one. I'm going to play it. Hopefully this isn't too loud. So I'm not switching now. I'm just checking my sync. And when that's all good, I say, yes, I'm, I'm good to go. So I'll, I'm going to show you another example where I want to map some audio. But here now I'm in my switcher. And I'm just going to go back to the beginning. And here's the cameras that as they're coming online, and I can just tap. And in this case, it makes it really fun to switch because I can kind of do it very naturally. Now, say I was done switching, I can go to a cut point and I can just move that cut point if I want. Or I could jump to a cut and say, well, actually, I want to switch to a different camera. And you see it's all color-coded, so I can tell that I'm on camera two. And if I thought, well, I want to actually be on camera four, I can just tap. It's going to cut till the very next cut point, so it's super easy. You can see my main audio down at the bottom, my my primary audio down at the bottom. And when I close the switcher, I'm going to get this timeline um, clip. 
So some of the interesting things about this clip is I can tap once and pick it up and move it like a normal clip, or I can tap a second time and get right into a clip, in which case I can double tap and go into the effects editors just for that one clip. Say so I'm just going to put a wild effect on here so you can see it really easily. Um, well, let's see what, what we got. Okay, I'm just going to do something uh, like a, that, that's really obvious. So now that's just on that one clip. But if I wanted to say I didn't like the color for this whole uh, piano, I could go in here and double tap back in the synchronizer. And this is going to do the entire clip. So let's just turn that one. Uh, let's go black and white saturation. Okay. So back on the timeline, every time I cut to the piano, which I guess I didn't cut to again, so I'll go back to the switcher. Okay. Now, every time I cut to the piano is black and white. So we have both local and... And then in here, I can use this clip as a normal clip in my timeline, do anything I want to it. I can even decide that I want to break it apart and put any other clips in between. So now I've created two just by saying, well, actually, I want to trim and put some other clips in between there. That makes sense? So um, let's see what else. Oh, so that's like a music video. But if you wanted to do something more like a... Uh, so that'd be useful show. if you want to do like commentary on what they were playing or something like that. You can split the whole timeline, even though, and then everything remains in state, kind of magnetically, like Final Cut works. Exactly. Oh yeah, I can I can just take a clip and slip it in there, and then I've got you know I've got anything I want. And you also have your other six, your other five tracks, and your other audio tracks as well. Makes sense. Another thing, I mean, one of the things I like about one one thing that stopped us when we were developing and designing was um, that we realized how important audio is. It's not just syncing to a primary track. There's all sorts of stuff you want to do with audio. So I'm going to create another multicam clip here in a different way. I'm going to use this, uh, this shoot from a cooking show. And I'll go into the synchronizer. And in this case, I have different audio sources I have and I'm going to put my I'm going to put my audio only down here instead of putting it in the main track because what I want to do is say I I don't really like the audio from camera 1 I think let me go listen to that one a couple more pieces of garnish both for Yeah that's really low so I'm going to map 1 to 4 so now 1 is going to be playing um camera 4 and I, I'll actually map, let's just say I map two to three. So now you can see with the colors that every time I cut to one, I'm going to get one's video and, and four's and the audio from four. So I'm going to sync these up. So the thing this really allows you to do is 
set up your audio ahead of time so you don't have to think about it when you're switching. You know, with most switch, you know, with most multicam environments, you have to say, okay, at this point I need to turn off audio switching or I need to do this. And we've made it so that you can just set this up one time, but based on the quality of your audio and not have to think about it. Now, if you need to in the switcher, you can still do those other changes as well. But uh but we've given you another way to yeah. set up things easily. So I'm gonna go back and go to the switcher in this case. Now, as I as I switch this, they add a lot of heat. You would hear. Let's see. Well, there's not a lot of audio right now, but oh, that's a bad cut. So no big deal because I can go back and switch it. But you can. So basically, see, you can eliminate yeah. having to deal with scratch track audio or bad audio because it was in a cage or something like that, and it couldn't hear well. Right. You just don't have to think about that after you set this initial audio targeting up yeah when you're syncing you do all of your you could do most of your color correction right unless the camera changes during the shot you can do all of your audio uh levels audio corrections audio mapping and then once you but that's the beauty of it because once you get to the switching part you're really just watching your media and and responding to that in a really natural way and you're not worrying about things we do have the ability to say oh i actually hear i only want to cut audio so i just turn that off and and you can now switch and just cut odd just cut audio but or 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 the or just cut video but i think that's not the i mean that's something you can do but it's not a normal everyday thing when you've already set up all your audio you don't have to deal with that right at the yeah, time clearly you've thought about the mental flow for the editor to make it as transparent as possible so that when you're cutting you just concentrate on the rhythm and the flow of what you're cutting and not have to worry about all this background detail stuff yeah and that's what i think that's what makes it so fun is you're just really in the moment it's like you're actually on the shoot just say oh i i see that over there and i see that and i, I want to see that now and you're not worried about the technology and i think that's what i always felt about multicam is that i couldn't quite get into the zone i was always like am i doing this right and is everything set up right and oh i have to stop and now turn off video or audio and do that cut and now you know it it wasn't creative and now uh, I feel like it really is a creative act that anyone can do. Like anyone who sets up two or more cameras is just able to stick those in there, press sync, press switch and go. So I know some of our panelists had questions. Do you have another thing you want to talk about very quickly or do you want to go? No, to no, I, that's fine. I will stop sharing and um, take Alex, you had some questions. No, it, it looks fantastic. I mean, it just, it's, uh, it, it, now what's the process of getting those files in? Is it, is it something that you, uh, do you put it up in, in photos? Uh, do you transfer it external drive? Like exactly how did, how, what's the easiest way to get the yeah. files in that we shot from the cameras? Well, so, obviously, you know, it depends on where you, how you've shot. Have you shot it on a, a traditional camera or have you shot it on an iPhone? Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we did at NAB was, as Chris mentioned, we put our media onto external drives. So we had three external drives hooked up through the OWC GoDoc. So you had the GoDoc connected to the USB-C yeah. of the iPad. And, and then you could, had three hard drives connected mm -hmm. to that. And we could just cut um, from those. So that, that was a 
That was great. I, we didn't actually, it was kind of funny because I told Chris that we tested it out and it, and it was going to work. And he said, no, I, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> and I said, no, it does. It does. And he, so he tried it. He's like, what? <laughs> so yeah. it really, yeah, it was funny. And, and yeah, so you can do it that way. Um, I personally, like, I find if you're shooting on iPhones, the easiest thing to do is have an iPhone. Apple ID with for, for work only that you just put your projects uh, media in. So I set up all my shooting phones, you know, I have my nicer iPhones um, with good lenses to that Apple ID. And therefore I never have to transfer anything. It just shows up on my iPad. And that's, you know, obviously using what was meant for maybe consumer consumption for a different purpose, but it does it's the easiest thing to do for sure. Yeah. The nice thing is to make sure people understand is, is you can use all those methods all at once. You can get your media from multiple places. You could have some right. of your media from a drive, some of your media from photos. LumaFusion doesn't care about that in the sense that it will do the right thing with the media, you know, whatever, wherever you get it from. And so you can have multiple sources. If you have some stuff from Dropbox or Frame.io from other, you know, from other people for the project, just bring it in, drag it. You know, it's almost yeah. always just a drag and drop and we'll do the right thing for you with it. Frame.io is integrated. So you just log into your Frame.io and you can see any media on there. And then uh, we grab it when when you drag it to the timeline. So. Yeah, and we also have a similar integration with the new Dropbox Replay, which is another uh, similar type of review and approval um, tool. Yeah. Alex, do you have anything else or do we? The, we only, the only question I have is, so if someone's going a, a bit gorilla and they want to put, they don't have time code, but they want to put it on one of the, like the left channel, is that something they can use to sync the the clips up as well? They might have the regular audio on one channel and the and the time code on another. Um, yes. LTC. I mean, I think, uh, oh, yeah, I think that, isn't that what Andrew's working on is the Yeah, LTC? Yeah, we don't ha currently have LTC time code support in there, but that will be coming in a future update. So we do normal time code and, and uh, that, but yeah, that is coming. That's great. Mitch, you had some questions? Yeah, Terry and Chris, thanks for being here. And that's a great piece of software. Um, as a uh, traditional editor, I'll say, uh, my biggest fear when I get a timeline, I put a lot of time into and I get near the end and then I find, oh, uh, somehow I lost sync, uh, with the, with the soundtrack earlier on, how do you protect sync down the line or do a resync? If you find that you've gone and messed something up yeah. with some kind of ripple edit or a slip somewhere. Yeah. I mean, so I think having, you know, I, I, like I said, I've been editing since the eighties and I think that our timeline model is the most flexible and easy to use than any anything I've used in the past, you know, Avid, Final Cut, Premiere, because what we've done is combined a magnetic timeline with a linear, uh, like a, a track-based timeline. So the way we work it is, is the main track is either an insert or overwrite. So you can always make that choice. Like I can, I can say, I don't want to touch anything right now. I just want to be really safe and go into overwrite and overwrite a clip. We can, you can also replace a clip or you can, you can work in insert mode. Like I almost am always in insert mode and be, and everything in that is magnetic to that main track. So the clips hang off of it that are, you know, they're linked like in Final Cut. But because we have 
the combined track-based model, you can unlink a clip if you like to, or a group of clips to not make them move. And you can also lock whole tracks. Like if I have a soundtrack I've worked really hard at and I'm just going to cut to that, I would I would lock those tracks and then just work on the, on the video. So th there's a lot of options to keep you in sync. Um, Let me uh, jump in with yeah. on multicam, you know, specifically at any time you can go back into the, into the synchronizer and either resync or adjust, or let's say down the line, you have a problem. You could cut the clip and nudge, you know, a, a clip a little oh, farther forward, and that'll, you know, feed through to any of your edits that you have and, and keep things in sync. Yeah. So. Sorry. I wasn't sure whether you were talking about multicam or regular, but yeah, both are pretty easy. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Courtney has a question. Yeah, I had a question in your multicam synchronizer that all looks really slick and uh, it chooses in the automatic mode will it choose time code or audio uh, guide track to sync it up is very cool. One question I had is where does the time code come from? If you have people shooting on different phones, uh, where does the time base come from? If you're not using an external LTC input into that phone, does it just use the uh, cellular systems time time code base? So, and how do you deal with different frame rates if different phones can only, you know, one phone will shoot 2997, the other shoots 30, and another one shoots 24. How do you deal with mixed frame rates in the synchronizer with uh, perhaps an audio track recorded on a, an external audio I'm recorder gonna, with its own time code base? Yeah, I'll answer the first part of that, and then Chris can take the second part. The first part is, like, time code would normally come from if you're not shooting on an iPhone. So if you shot on any other professional camera that had time code, Chris, you take the Yeah, rate. you know, honestly, the different frame rates, you know, could be an issue. And, and generally we found that, you know, at the moment using audio for sync is probably your best option. But with the LTC time code coming up, I think there's going to be a lot more options, particularly uh, tools like uh, tentacle sync, you know, where you can basically, you know, jam in, you know, LTC time code on iPhones and other devices, I think will will make that more useful for iPhones. We, um, yeah, I, Honestly, that that is an area where timecode has a more limited use right now, and only in in devices that actually provide you know actual timecode. So, so track. so on the uh, the tracks that come the video that comes from an iPhone, the uh, timecode is in the metadata at the head of the file. Is that where that is? Yeah, and it's only going to be a you know sync at the head of the file, and so you know that that can sometimes. We haven't generally found it to be too major of an issue, you know, but, you know, we haven't done really, you know, I, I haven't tested it with super long form things to see how much drift we get, you know, with with different frame rates out as we go out. But again, you know, that's a place where right now you'd probably manually make some adjustments if you saw it happening down the road. Um, you know, the thing is, most iPhones captured a slightly variable frame rate anyway, but generally, you know, Apple's, you know, AV Foundation and LumaFusion will pick the right frame to keep things in sync down down the line, and and does a nice time mapping to make sure that that stays in sync based on the audio primarily. I see. So even in a long clip, if you got a thirty minute clip or something, yeah. where it could oh drift, yeah, we we get a lot of correct as it goes along based on the audio. Audio, yeah, yeah, great, great, thanks. So we have some questions coming in. Let's get to our first one. Mitch, first one in from uh, JJ McKenna, Bill. Uh, in San Rafael, California, after watching a demo recently from Philippe Baez looking at a released iPad editor, could Fenwick comment on the differences between LumaFusion and a different type of tablet editor? Chris Fenwick, you've been uh, invoked. Almost certainly not. Um, Terry and Chris, 
I've always been uh, impressed. Your software is elegant. I think that if if I was going to describe it with one word, it's elegant. And I think you've done a great job at um, taking. What's interesting about editorial and editing is everybody wants it to be simple. You know, just it's so easy, Uh, and it's not. It's difficult. You're bringing in sources from all kinds of places, and 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 it's and it's difficult. But you've you've persisted at keeping it elegant. Um, I personally, I'm not a big fan of the iPad. I, I I wish Apple didn't waste their time on it and just made my desktop computer better. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> I get it. I'm what I'm really curious about is has it um, has it ratcheted up your urgency now that. Apple has their their iPad software. What's the what's the mood like in the office? I'm curious. You know, honestly, you know when when they announced it, of course, you know you're like, oh boy, you know. What's Here we go. Thing? Yeah, <laughs> but the day I sat down with it, I I was honestly a little surprised by the fact that it didn't have a lot of things that I expected. Um, you know, even for me, one of the biggest surprises was frankly performance, um, you know, which I, I would have expected Apple to be better at. So I put together two timelines on an M1 iPad, both with just six tracks of 4K video playing back. You know, LumaFusion played it back smoothly. Um, Final Cut Pro started stuttering after about five seconds and hmm. never scrolled the timeline. And we're scrolling the timeline, we're playing back. So I was actually sort of surprised. And frankly, feature-wise, there's features. Now, Given, you know, Apple's very careful about what they release, you know. 1.0, sure. Yeah, they're going to do a 1.0 and they're going to iterate. So, you know, we we obviously have our work cut out for us to, I hope, stay ahead of the game, you know. But at the same time, we have a very different editor. So, and that became even more apparent when I used, you know, Final Cut Pro that we have a different approach to things. And I think that'll continue and it'll, there'll be appeals for both tools for, for different people. And frankly, for the same person, they might use Final Cut for one thing and LumaFusion for another, and that's okay. What I was also, unfortunately, I, I was disappointed by is that Final Cut on iPad can't import FCP XML, you know, and so because we export FCP XML for desktop editors who want to continue editing there. And so, you know, that that's an unfortunate, you know, thing that we can't do that. Um, Chris, clarification, did you just say you export Final oh, Cut XML, yeah. or you, can you import it as well? Uh, no, we only export at this point, you know. And, and but I think the, they're only doing that as well. Yeah, that, well, they're not actually exporting FCP XML on the iPad. They have a custom format there. It's a, it's we've looked uh, at that because we were hoping that that might be a future workflow, but it's not. It's yeah. Uh, so and who is it? Somebody somebody has posted that they have worked. Uh, it might be Chris Hawking uh, that has a way. A hack of getting a Final Cut XML, uh, not XML, but a Final Cut uh, timeline. I call it data export into the Final Cut for the iPad, even though Apple doesn't officially support it. Mm, interesting. I think one of the things that's important to remember about Apple's uh, behavior, and and we know this from watching Final Cut Ten for the last what's it now twelve years, is um, Apple is okay with not doing something. Uh, it rather than doing it and not doing it really well. So if if you look at like how long it took Final Cut 10 to get multicam, it's like, come on, or or paste attributes. Yeah. Why can't I paste attributes? But when it came out, you went, ooh, this is really awesome. Yeah. You know, so that that's a behavior that they're doing. And let's face it, you're what are you like? Uh, 
got a four-year jump on them, five-year jump. How long have you been six, doing that? Six-year jump on them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it is interesting. And, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely competition for us. And we, you know, of course we even look at it and go, oh, there's some things we like there that, you know, we'll, we'll certainly, you know, incorporate moving forward. And, you know, I, and there was obviously things they looked at in LumaFusion that they incorporated. So it's, it's, it's part of the co- fun competition that makes both products better. I think. I, I also love the fact, Chris, that you were surprised when Terry said, no, 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 it's working. We can get it off the three drives. <laughs> <laughs> like there's something there's a there's a relationship between the uh, like an opera and, and I don't want to uh, um, minimize what you're doing, Terry. But like sometimes an editor will go, ah, I should be able to do that. And the the engineers or the programmers like, oh, no, not going to work. Not gonna work. What? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> that's just true. make it happen that's, that's that's a big part of my Some, role sometimes is to say, sometimes you you just got to push the envelope and break mm-hmm. things and and see what you can you know force something to do absolutely now, oh and be persistent like because a lot of times i am quite an annoying partner to have <laughs> because i'm like i really really want this you know i want this to work <laughs> but two that's other real quick in things. the service to product improvement <laughs> <laughs> two, two other real quick things, and this is something that I've always felt that all editors should do. Um, I love uh, what you call the synchronizer. I, I, I love the fact that you have that at your, uh, you know, multicam editor or whatever. Uh, I've always thought it'd be great if you could like just lasso or shift click a bunch of clips that you've already stacked in a timeline and go, yeah, I made a mistake. I should have multicam these. Send these to the synchronizer. Uh, I know that. Uh, a lot, I don't do it now because I've been dealing with this long enough, but I know that a lot of like green editors, and I don't mean people that are making videos about the environment, but, uh, uh, young editors will, um, accidentally they'll start doing this and then they'll go, Oh yeah, maybe I should do this multicam thing. Anyway, that, I, and then, yeah, uh, I really like that feature. And I actually, you could with the current version, it, I, I want to make that a feature exactly the way you've said it, but you could actually lasso select, say copy start a new multicam container and I believe you might be able to paste them in. I'll have to check that. But, uh, but anyway, we'll get that on our feature request. I, you know, it's, 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 I've always thought it. And I also love I yeah. love the fact, I love the fact that you have the little, uh, j- just like put the audio here. You don't have to take up one of your, um, one of your angles. And uh, I would love to hear to, and not right now, but Terry, I'd love to hear more about the uh, having everything just from your cameras, uh, your iPhones, automatically just go to the iCloud account because I've been trying to wrap my head around that workflow. Uh, anyway, I'll let Alex talk. I'll yeah, I, that sparked me. A separate account just for the video. Work. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Alex, you had a question. Yeah. Um, so I, I, just to build on what Chris was talking about. So when you're describing where LumaFusion fits into this, because I do think that it's a much more fluid solution on the iPad than anything else out there right now. But how do you, dis- when you're talking to people about distinguishing it from Resolve and it's now on the iPad and the Final Cut on the iPad, um, you know, how do you talk about that? You know, when, you, when you're talking about the three editors that now are there. I'll take that, Terry. Or shall I? <laughs> oh, should I take that? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the... Because <laughs> I, I think mean, it's easy. Like when people talk to me about it, I'm curious about what you say to it. I'm, I'm just like, well, LumaFusion's a lot flu- more fluid. Like I've already, I've played with Resolve. I've played yeah. with, with Final Cut. And so far, it still feels like, you know, you have, there's one. So I guess what, how I would distinguish it is that right now they still both feel like 
Final Cut and Resolve feels like we took something from the desktop and put it on the on the yeah. iPad, as opposed to we built something for the iPad. I guess that's one one way of looking at it is that they they borrowed from the desktop, but I think it is that we we have just spent a lot of our effort and time um, internalizing the process of editing and and really examining how right. users are wanting to edit. So we have people coming in to do uh, regular testing, you know, at our office so we can actually sit and watch them do it and so usability tests. But I, I also think that we're not, we've never, Chris and I never started LumaTouch to make money and be in a big business. We started LumaTouch because we both love what we're doing. We love editing. I love editing so much. Like on the weekend, I felt so bad because I I should have been doing something with my son. And I'm just like, well, I could just spend a few hours editing. I just love it. And so that I think comes through because when something doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel right. I actually get kind of irritated and I'll, and I'll text Chris and say, this, this is not good. I, I, this is bothering me. And it can be just a little tiny thing. But had I been working for a bigger company like Blackmagic or Apple, I don't know if I would have that like power. I wouldn't have that communication with the lead developer. I, I just wouldn't have the ability to do that. And having worked at Avid with Chris, I know that even when I knew something was wrong, it would be like, well, let's put it in the backlog and maybe we'll get to it next year. It's not as high priority as five other things. But to me, the experience is the priority that right. I want to feel happy and creative when I'm editing. And I just don't think you're going to get that in a bigger company. That's that's the real problem, I think. You mentioned one other thing. You know, oddly enough, some of the fluidity that you mentioned, and and just some of the workflow that makes storytelling fun in in LumaFusion, frankly, comes from the fact that we started it in 2013 when there were a lot more limitations on the iPad, and and frankly, that drove some of the decisions we made that to this day I think make the app better for it. You know, for example, having the separate clip editor lets you focus on a single clip. That was done out of necessity at the time, you know, because we couldn't have all the controls. We could have all the controls in the timeline now and do all that. But frankly, it's a nicer workflow to say, I'm going to focus on the effects and, you know, and, you know, the audio adjustments and the color correction for this clip right now, um, you know, and then get back out to my storytelling in the timeline. And I, I think that works. And I think it, you know, so some things happen by necessity often in, in, in technology, that's what happens, and 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 others were by design. So you know, yeah, and the iPad does force you. I mean, it did, like Chris said, force us not to use a bunch of menus to get to features. So every feature has to be present, you know, understandable from a tiny icon, and no words next to it, right? Because it's in all languages, so it's got to be real simple and understandable. And that that was by necessity. Before we get to our next question, I just wanted to touch base with you. What are the hardware requirements? People are out there with all sorts of iPads. And I know a lot of people who are interested in exploring this with the new Apple offering. You have to have an M2 or something, you know, M1. It, there's very limited hardware considerations. You said you have a broader array of 
tools that you can work with this? What, what's your minimums? LumaFusion will run on any iPad or iPhone that supports iOS 15.4 or later. So it's basically an iPad ninth generation, it might even be eighth. I think it's ninth is, no, it's eighth generation and above. And I think an iPhone S or an iPhone 10 or above, if I remember right, it might even be slightly lower than that. So just about any modern device that's within about four or five years old. So um, we support Excellent. it. And you can do multicam on an iPhone too. It's it's a different experience, but but works very well there too. Now so that would be interesting. How did, does that get really really small towards uh, the interface? Well, you know, we 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 make definite decisions there. You know, of what to show and what not to show, but still have all the features there and and make it a usable experience. And you know, on the iPhone, you can. Another thing we've done a lot of is is take advantage of the different, you know, whether you're in portrait or landscape and you can rearrange your uh, layout of the UI depending on what you're doing at the time. And that gives you a lot of flexibility to work, you know, in a small screen environment. So, of course, with my Just old please eyes, don't tell me hands, I need so. a jeweler's loop to edit. Yeah, going there you go. That's it. Well, that's when we do the watch version. You'll need that. <laughs> no, thank you. No, no, please. I want the watch uh, Alex, you had another thought? Well, I want multicam on the watch. Like, you can just you sit go. there. Is he looking at what time it is or is he cutting the next music video? Just sitting there tapping away. Um, so we're a weekend away from WWDC. Uh, is there anything that you're looking, as developers, is there anything that you're looking forward to or hoping to see next week? Yeah, um, you know, obviously it's going to be a very interesting WWDC with the rumors that are out there. But from my own standpoint, just seeing some of the things that are in Final Cut, I'm hoping we see a couple things that will help improve LumaFusion. Um, one, you know, uh, Luma or Final Cut has, you know, audio scrubbing, you know, when you're uh, scrubbing. I hope they have that in the APIs. Uh, I hope we get access to the cinematic, you know, mode tools. That's something we've been asking for, you know, for some some time. And they are able to reverse instantly without any rendering. And that, I hope, is available in the API. So from my standpoint, those are the three interesting. Anything else would be gravy. I, my gut feeling is the focus is going to be on very different things, you know, so it's you never know. But, you know, they have different teams there, and I hope that's what we see. Are, are, are you guys thinking at all about any USDZ and integration, like being able to bring 3D models into your... In your, uh, uh, in we, environment. Yeah, we do have that on our feature request list. And, you know, moving forward, some of the areas we're working on are improved, you know, um, animation, keyframing, and that could lead into that. I mean, it, you know, it's not on the immediate horizon, but mm. we'll definitely be looking into that as well. Courtney. Uh, just to be clear, this uh, Luma, the latest version of LumaFusion is available also on Android and Chrome operating system. Is it compatible across? That platform? is correct. Yeah, it's now not all the same feature set yet. We are working really hard to start. You know, we decided to have a cutoff on on Android because you know, with such a wide environment there and different performance capabilities, it's a much. It was a much bigger development task just to get it up and running, and we're still working on that. Um, but we've actually got it up very close to our basic. You know. 3.2.3 version and we're starting to work towards bringing up to full you know full compatibility with the ios side and that will continue doing this year so the multi-cam feature is that available yet on it is not available yet. And that that may be a little wide just down the road that was one we really need to make some performance improvements on you know on a wider range of of android devices to make that possible but the main experience of of LumaFusion on the android is is exactly what you'd expect and it really works really well especially on the higher end uh, you know, Galaxy tablets and things like that. Okay, thanks. Let's move to our next question. From Adrian Watkins in Wellington, New Zealand, super cool within Multicam, is there a way to help cut on the beat of a music audio track? You know, we don't have that feature right now, and that is something we've had on our feature request list for a while, and, and uh, you know, I don't know if, you know, I don't know when we'll have that, but I appreciate the question. It's something that is important, we realize. 
Um, is it at this point you just listen back and tap, tap, tap on the beat? Is that how you'd end up executing yeah. cuts? And then you could roll trim to get it exactly on the beat very easily if you'd missed a beat. Well, that's interesting. You know, sometimes you have something that's like a march and it's it's very clear where the tempo markers hit. And, you know, even good editors sometimes, depending on the video content, want that cut to be a little ahead of or a little behind. And certainly jazz and and music that's more freeform, sometimes there isn't a specific easy decision. Right. That's where the kick drum hits. So let me cut there. So it, it gets to be a creative choice. Chris Fenwick, you had a thought? Yeah, you know, uh, years ago, like maybe even 20 years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a music producer, and he started delving into video editing and uh, taking my work, at whatever. Um, and not he that was you're bitter. not that I'm bitter. No, no, I, he's a good friend. I'm happy he's doing anything he's doing. Uh, he was shocked and felt that it was uh, on the verge of barbaric that video editors didn't have beat detection. He's like, how it, he says, Pro Tools has had this for a decade. And this was 20 years ago when he said that to me. And he said, he said that um, it's, it's ridiculous that video editors don't have beat detection. And it makes me think, and I don't normally get to sit and talk to, you know, developers like this. Uh, it makes me think it would be really interesting for you to, uh, take a week off. I know you're busy. You know <laughs> how hard can it how hard can it be to make a multi-platform <laughs> tablet-based video editing tool? Uh, take a week off. Go take a Pro Tools class and learn everything about beat detection. Right. Because I think that there's a real um, still like still 20 years later, as far as I know, no video editing tool has beat detection like Pro Tools does. And when you have it, it's super cool. And I realize that, you know, from an artistic standpoint, you don't always necessarily want something cut exactly on the beat. But often you do. And if and if there was a snap to beat feature or something where it's just listening to the music and figure out how Pro Tools does it, I'm sure, you know, whatever. It's a super interesting thing that's, to my knowledge, has never been addressed on a video editing tool. Well, that, that is interesting. And I, the good thing I'll say is that we have a senior engineer here who is an audio expert. He worked at Mixing Key. He's worked at other you know places. And just that is his domain as an electrical engineer. So knows it from the true audio side, you know, from, from that. And so, you know, we have the people in-house to do that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear that. Um, it so, would be interesting to see, yeah. not, I mean, yes, we can reinvent it, but, uh, you know, the Pro Tools is is the standard, right? And yeah. so figure out what they're doing, how they're doing <laughs> it. Talk to a few engineers and, and you'll see how they're doing, you know, what they're doing with it. And then glean from that what, you know, and Terry knows, you know, what, what do we need as an editor? Yeah. Sometimes you want it right on the beat. Sometimes you want to push and pull and add tension and art and blah, blah, blah. You know, whatever. Yeah. And by the time you get that in there, you're going to have AI doing now Max Brochify it or, there we go. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, give me a great drummer. Yeah, maybe this is. Uh, maybe I have to take responsibility for that lack of feature because I don't typically cut on the beat. I would put the action on the beat. So whenever it comes up, I'm like, yeah, I would rather put the action on the beat, not the cut. But uh, I think that, you know, I'm glad you brought up AI, Bill, because, you know, over the weekend I was editing something and I I was doing some animating um, 
hand-drawn animation over video to bring back in LumaFusion to to put over my video. And um, I thought, wow, I, you know, I'm I'm guessing you can just do that with AI and I could probably just go get a tool. But I had so much fun just doing that myself that I, I had this great deep sense of sadness that, you know, if everything goes AI, we will actually lose the total enjoyment you can get from building yourself. Like, you know, I don't know. I imagine it like a puzzle, like a tabletop puzzle. You know how much enjoyment you get from just the relaxation of sitting there putting the puzzle pieces together. But if you bought a puzzle and you just snapped your fingers and it was all put together, it would be the worst puzzle in the world, right? It's called and a so poster, I... by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. And, they, you know, AI might give you the Gene Krupa-ify this or Phil Collins-ify this, two different drummers' approaches. But isn't the point to make it the you-ified? Yeah. That's what you're being hired for is to bring something to the table that isn't like something that somebody else would do facing the same thing. Christian so imagine, imagine, Terry, if you could select a, a soundtrack and say – Okay, uh, do beat detection, and all it did was put markers on on tempos. And now you could like just put you know like a marker on a door slam and just go whoosh, 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 pop, right? Pop, 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 pop. Yeah, I'm not some... against the feature in general. <laughs> I mean, I agree. It it could be useful. Um, it's just that I think I haven't pushed for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One more, one more thing on AI. You know, I, I think AI is going to have a lot of uses of reducing the tedious, you know, the tedious aspects of editing. Um, you know, for and and to do new things. You know, for example, we one of the first things we got in recently with 4.0, and this is actually Apple's work again. Is is their machine learning based voice isolation filter, and that's amazing. You know, and more and more tools like that that use AI in ways that will just reduce the work that you have to do and let you even do more of the enjoyment of storytelling and the creative parts of it. That's, you know, that's where we're headed as we bring more and more machine learning and AI into LumaFusion is to try to make those just the tools easier to do what you want to do and, and reduce some of the more tedious aspects of it. Well, and I think that there's there's a possibility of it, of having an AI be the assistant editor that does a lot of stuff for you. You know, you just throw a bunch of stuff in it tags a bunch of stuff for you it Absolutely. figures that stuff out and maybe even you know for a lot of corporate stuff for education it just, just does an assembly you know just assembles everything for you you know into something that you now now go into i've, I've worked uh, with a couple artists a sculptor in in africa and he's got 30 people he draws out what he wants and then he's got 30 people that get it to about 90 percent done you know and he he comes over and dotes on each one of them going, oh, don't do that or move this over here or do whatever. But it's granite. And he and these are like he's pounding on, the people are pounding on stuff. And so then what he does is he's guided that idea and then he then he comes in and he finishes everything. Like he just, he, he puts his touch on it and kind of tightens it all up. And he, he had his touch on it all the time. But I think that there's a possibility of it looking at how you like to edit, how you like to edit, right? Look at all my stuff that I do, figure out what I like, and then assemble this to a 90% finished or 85% finished in the in the ballpark that I want. And then I'm going to go in and give it the magic that makes it different. But I think that there's a, a way to kind of get, I mean, that's what stops me from editing a lot of times is like, yeah. oh, the setup. <laughs> like, 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 I'm like, you know, if yeah. I can get in there and it's all done, then, uh, you know, like, and all I have to do is work on the, on where it's cut. Not like not done, but like it's all in there and kind of in the right place. And all I have to do is 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 melt it to, to, to what I want. Um, I think I'd probably do more of it. 
yeah, I think there's a lot of potential there. And yeah, it's, I think there's going to be a lot of changes over the next couple of years in that regard, for sure. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Carlos Rojas from Washington, D.C., asking, does the sync feature work with both Android and iOS video files? Now, it only works on iOS at the moment, but it should work with Android video files. There shouldn't be any problem there. Now, we don't, uh, iOS doesn't support the WebM video format at the moment, but anything else, an MP4 file that comes from Android, you know, will work just fine. Um, yes, that, it, that it does. Much. I've tested that. Yeah, we've yeah, done that for sure. Cool. Let's go to the next question. Chris Fenwick from Emeryville, California, asking, can we discuss what you've learned about the iCloud workflow and strategies to take? You mean as far as putting, uh, making a new Apple ID? I mean, the one thing, is that what, is that the question? Well, yeah, first of all, I just want to say great question. But uh, yeah, um, <laughs> you've mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you created an iCloud account that all of your, I think you, I think your words were, you know, your higher end iPhones. I, I'm envisioning, Terry, that you have a roadcase someplace with a bunch of phones that you use specifically for video per production. Nobody's texting their grandparents on it. Uh, right. And, and uh, they're dedicated to this. They're all logged onto the same iCloud account. Your edit system suite, iPad, wherever that is, also logged onto it. So once I take a shot, a certain amount of time passes and boop, it pops up on everybody's on, iPads. Yeah. On everybody's iPad. So are there, um, are there any... Uh, I think this is a, a this is a workflow I've been wanting to experiment with. I didn't have the, you know, the big deep loop uh, Luma Fusion pockets to go buy a bunch of spare iPhones to 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 try it. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm curious, uh, d does it work well? Are there any hiccups? Are there any problems that you've come across? And I realize this is not talking about your software, and I apologize. No, for I mean it is. It is in a in a sense. No, I think uh, so. We have a number of studio iPhones that we you know we use in the studio, but we also check them out to do you know shooting outside. And the nice so when we weren't doing that. It was just like everybody was like, where is the media? How do I get that media you shot? And then we started doing that. It's just like now everybody just, if they're logged into the studio account, they just get the footage automatically. It solved like every problem that we were having. Uh, and in LumaFusion, you know, you just drag it to the timeline. Then it will cache that onto your particular iPad. So if something were to happen to that iCloud version, you know, you're still going to have it in the project that you were using it in until you delete your cache manually, right? So, yeah, no, it's been great. I tell yeah. you, it would, be, it would be really awesome if, and, and maybe it does, I don't know. Does it? If, if a shot uh, had geolocation data in it, does it? It does. Yeah. And then you could sort by everything shot in Oregon. Yes. Boom. And now I have all, or, you know, from that road trip that we did. Yes, you can do that. Um, and by the way, it also, since you're a, de you know, a desktop aficionado, it works on the Mac as well. You know, so if you use LumaFusion on, on, on your Mac, then, you know, you can do that from photos there as well, as long as it's on the same ID. Yeah. It's very cool. Anyway, thank you. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Let's go to the next question. And Great coming question. in from Los Angeles, California is Gordon Lake. A couple wants their family and friends to provide all the wedding footage and cut it in LumaFusion. How would they set that up? Ooh, interesting. <laughs> Ooh. 
Yeah, with with different people. I mean, my person, and I'll let Terry think think of one as well. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do it. I I would personally use AirDrop. Um, you know, have the iPad there and let people AirDrop to it. Might be the simplest way. Um, you could also use the iCloud sharing. Um, if you're doing that, the one thing I'd recommend there's a setting in. Um, in photos, that's whether you use automatic or keep originals on when transferring data. If you use automatic, it can basically re-encode it and you might lose some quality. So, you know, anybody who's doing that, I'd recommend to use keep originals. That's not usually an issue when you're going between devices with AirDrop, but it's something to watch out for. I like the AirDrop idea because what happens when you leave a wedding is people say they're going to, you know, share their they media don't. and then they don't. <laughs> yeah. But if you just had an iPad there with a lot of storage and just said, hey, or yeah, and then just say, hey, on your way out, let me grab your phone and airdrop whatever you want to share with us. Uh, that would be really cool. I never thought of that. And I will give one warning about that that I just thought of. Um, you know, Apple made a change in iOS 16 to AirDrop um, where it only accept from everyone for 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, you might have to reset that. You know, it, it'll you can if you have it set for contacts, it'll do those forever. But if you want it to accept from anyone, it will only allow that for 10 minutes and then we'll reset. So it's a security. It is thing, super but, annoying. But it's a I little don't know annoying. why they did that. <laughs> yeah. So something to watch out for. People All right. Spammed at the airport. Yeah, that's yeah, right. No. That's it. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. And here's Chris Fanwick asking, uh, well, uh, what do you think of the theory that Apple is already using AI? It's what Steve Jobs used to call the magic. <laughs> right. You, know, you, you mentioned something just a moment ago, and it's like, uh, you know, there's uh, our, our uh, AI expert here, Preto. Sorry, there's trucks backing up outside. Uh <laughs> is doing this talk about, you know, all the tech companies and they're using it. But I, I think that there's a lot of things that my Apple products are already doing that are like, how did you do that? How did you know that? You know, I, I think mean, there's absolutely. A yeah. Like at NAB, I forgot my passport when I went to check in at the desk and, uh, <laughs> And one of my friends said, oh, just have you ever photographed your passport? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know when that would be. So I just type in passport and it showed up. And then I was able to use that as my ID. So, but I think it's just, there's, it's so in all sorts of media management stuff is for sure. But Chris, I'm sure has other ideas yeah. there. I mean, there, you know, Apple is definitely using it in a number of places. Now, Apple is always, as usual, careful about it. It always has to be able to work on device. So, you know, there's some limitations there. They're not going to go the Google route, you know, Google IO where everything is now AI, you know, it's just not going to be their, their domain. But, you know, Apple does a great job of using it carefully and slowly building that, you know, to, to, you know, the, the voice isolation filter is another example. They have um, a number of video filters that, you know, we plan on integrating with that, you know, do stylistic, you know, like oil painting style that are AI based, you know, to give a better result. And I think it'll just continually slowly built up. I, I think we'll see a significant amount from Apple about AI, you know, they'll focus it more on machine learning and it might be more about their, you know, augmented reality experiences, but, you know, they, they keep doing it. And, you know, one of the ones they mentioned just recently on accessibility is that voice learning feature where it can basically, you can train to your voice and, and then actually use your voice to talk. If you type something in, you know, that's another area. So they pick and choose areas that they think have, you know, really interesting uses and, um, and are controllable uses as well. So, and I think that'll continue to be what Apple does moving forward. Mitch Hill has a question. So we're, we're close to the point where I can say, edit this corporate video in the style of Walter Murch. 
There you go. Yeah. You go. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen some of the AI generated videos, but you know, it, it's got a little ways to go yet. <laughs> you, this has been really interesting because we've got a couple more questions. And we're right close to the top of the hour. So let's go to the next one real quick. JJ McKenna of San Rafael, California. Could you imagine integrating mid-journey into LumaFusion for adding sources to a timeline similar to your frame IO integration? Oh, absolutely. You know, we've got that, you know, we have the story blocks integration, you know, which gives you access to an amazing range of, you know, backgrounds, media, music, and other things. And I, I could see AI generated media being yet another source of, of media within, you know, integrated in LumaFusion. And thanks for the idea on that. We'll, we'll get working on that right away. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Mickey Makachor from Manila. Uh, Philippines ask, uh, does LumaFusion have the capability to ingest from camera media into multiple drives and verify the copies with a checksum? If not, perhaps a partner app may be in the future. Yeah, we don't have that in there at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's that's another one. It's not a workflow I'm you know overly familiar with, but it's certainly something we could do. And one of the things we've done is integrated with partners, you know, in the past, for example, our um, video stabilization is from core melts is basically core melts lock and load integrated in LumaFusion. So we're very open to integrating with anybody and everybody. That's another advantage of being a small company and not, you know, frankly, not being Apple is that, you know, we, we're very open to working with, you know, the best providers in the industry um, to create the best tool. And so I, I, that's certainly open to that. Chris and Terry, it's always an absolute pleasure to have you there. It's been a fascinating hour. Thank you very much for uh, walking us through the new products, the Multicam and LumaFusion. I imagine that a lot of people are going to want to check this out immediately. Um, Alex, what, what's happening tomorrow? I was trying to get into the officehours.global site, and I'm having a little trouble with it. Uh, we're making some we're making some changes to the uh, officehours.global site right now. Oh, it should be it should be uh, so we're we're making uh, we're, we're moving some stuff there. So it's it's down for a moment uh, as we as we finish all of that up. Um, just a little spring cleaning. But tomorrow we will be at Cinegear, and so um, so tomorrow we. Uh, we're we're pretty excited about um uh that that process today we're, we're I mean, tonight we're all getting together a little bit and then tomorrow we'll be in uh in after hours uh in uh from noon till six or seven uh we will be just covering Cinegear there um and then also in the on Saturday we'll have from eleven to three we'll actually be broadcasting that so you have that and then and then in the morning for office hours uh, we've got Jonas uh, uh, Dottel and a, a slew of other folks talking about remote production. So how are they putting all this stuff together? Uh, are they using the cloud? Where they, where they use hardware? How do they control the hardware? How do they control the cloud? All those things. They're going to be there to talk about their workflows and, and answer your questions about that. So it's a busy couple of days. Absolutely. So uh, the final thing always is to thank you, everybody. Thank you to our guests today. It's been fabulous. To everybody who works on the, the, who touches the show, not just works on it, but who puts in effort to make this happen. Our producers, everybody who asked questions today and put them in. The panelists who are here to help you and show up every single day. The entire crew and back-end force that is global and amazing. Um, we're continuing to build. We're looking forward to seeing you. I'll be in Los Angeles tomorrow for our first day of uh, Cinegear, and I'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of people in person. Courtney actually might get to shake your hand. I'm looking forward to that. So <laughs> excellent. We will see you all tomorrow on the show. Thank you for watching, and let's roll credits. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, guys. I got to edit one of my clips in LumaFusion this weekend. <laughs> Cut it all together. Good, good, good. I realized.
I think you've given me the best justification when I tell my wife, no, I can't get rid of this phone. I need to keep it because I'm collecting old yeah. phones so I can do multicam. Exactly. Right. Cameras. <laughs> I just collect them. All my old phones are my kids and my and my wife. And so the kids have 12s. My wife has 13. I have 14. And when I do multicam, I just have to collect everybody's cameras. Okay, <laughs> let me the cameras just for a second. We'll cut mm. this together. The question is, how much put back the pushback do you get from? You can't take my phone away. <laughs> 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 Technically, who's <laughs> <laughs>